that muscle protein synthetic response generates the variations in thermic effect of feeding. Low muscle mass will be a precursor for elevated levels of blood glucose, insulin resistance, elevated levels of triglycerides. The unifying factor was the fact that they had unhealthy skeletal muscle. The loss of skeletal muscle mass may have a greater influence on health outcomes than the actual gain of body fat. There is nothing more potent than exercising skeletal muscle when it comes to longevity and having a balancing effect in the body. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, this has honestly been one of my favorite episodes to date. Yes, one of my favorite episodes ever. I simply adore Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I was so excited that she was coming out with a book and that book delivered, oh my goodness, it blew my mind on all things muscle and how muscle is potentially truly the cornerstone of our health. And we dive deep, deep, deep in this episode into so many things. Prepare for your mind to be blown We talk about things like muscle memory and regaining muscle versus gaining it for the first time, the implications of grip strength and how Dr. Lyon thinks that maybe it's not something we should actually be looking at, the role of leucine and mTOR, the athlete's paradox, differences in the thermic effect of protein, the hidden epidemic of sarcopenic obesity, the difference in strength versus mass, anti-inflammatory myokines, which are released from our muscle, the crazy things about meat and vegan health claims, the formulation of the RDAs and how much protein you actually need to eat, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. There will be a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash foreverstrong. And there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And you have a very good chance of winning. And yes, you can win multiple times. You can also enter to win on my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. Also super exciting announcement, friends. My EMF blocking product line is coming. We are so, so close. Did you know that EMFs are classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans? This is such a problem. We are awash in EMFs from our cell phones, our AirPods, our Wi-Fi, so many things. And there are multiple studies linking EMFs to negative health effects. They can actually affect the calcium channels of our cells and lead to headaches, migraines, sleep issues, even fertility issues. I'm super excited because I'm going to be launching an EMF blocking product line starting with EMF free air tubes. These are what you want to use when you're listening to music, talking on the phone. Yes, they will do all the things that normal headphones do, like allow you to skip songs, play music, answer calls, all the things. Definitely get on my email list for it because I will be doing an amazing launch special. Get on that at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. 
I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to MelanieAvalon.com slash MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, 
often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts and friends get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I have been looking forward to this for so, so long. So the backstory on today's conversation, a while ago now, I'd have to see when it was, I had a fabulous guest on the show, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I adore her work because she talks about something that you guys know I am so passionate about and talk about all the time, which is the role of supporting our muscle and protein intake and all of those things. I mean, I honestly think on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we talk about it probably every week. And then I talk about it a lot on this show as well. And I think about it a lot. And so 
Previously, I'd interviewed Gabrielle. We have a lot of mutual friends and we did a whole episode on protein and it was so incredible. I learned so much, so much amazing feedback. So then when Dr. Lyon was releasing her new book, I was thrilled about the potential of having her on the show again. And friends, I, okay, so I knew I was going to like the book. I was set up to like it. It blew me away. I cannot recommend enough. Everybody get this book now. It is a paradigm shift. It will just change the way you view your life, your metabolism, your diet, so many things. It is a game changer. And the name of the book is Forever Strong, which is a brilliant name, by the way, a new science-based strategy for aging well. And I'm just, I was, I have so many notes. It's crazy. And I have so many rabbit tangents that I just want to go on and ask Dr. Lyon all of these questions. So Dr. Lyon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me back. So I, I really mean that your book, it's like everything that I could ever want in a book on all of this stuff. So thank you for what you're doing. I've even gone down the rabbit hole of like, it took me a long time to read it because I would read something and be so fascinated and then I'd have to go to the reference and then I would go on like the rabbit hole of like the studies and oh, it's just, it's really good. There's a lot of references in that book. There are, there are. And then once I go on the problem with not the problem, but when you go look up a study, it references studies. So then you have to go look up those studies and it's, yeah, so it was hard for me to like stay focused. But in any case, my audience, they are probably super familiar with your work, but for those who are not, could you tell them a little bit about your personal story and what made you so interested in the role of what you call muscle-centric medicine? I know you talk about the epiphany that you had in your career about all of this. So could you share that with listeners? Yeah. Let me give you a little bit about the backstory. Now, I graduated high school early when I was 17, and I moved in with my godmother, whose name is Elizabeth Lipsky. For your listeners, it's important to understand that this was the generation before functional medicine was a thing. Liz Lipsky is a PhD in nutritional sciences, and she wrote the book called Digestive Wellness really a trailblazer in the connection of nutrition and wellness. Before Mark Hyman, before some of these thought leaders really interfaced with the general public, which is incredible to have that information so young. From there, I knew nutrition was going to be the thing. And as fate or serendipity or synchronicity would have it, I ended up going to do my undergraduate in human nutrition, vitamin mineral metabolism. I landed in the class of the world-class expert, Dr. Donald Lehman, who has put a lot of the science behind what we now know as protein and muscle and the connection between how much we need to eat. I just landed in his classroom and have been mentored by him for the last 20 years. Fast forward through medical school and then into my fellowship so once a physician finishes residency, they then go on to practice. There is the opportunity to then do additional specialty training, which is exactly what I did. I went back to the Washington University in St. Louis, and I did a fellowship in geriatrics and nutritional sciences. Early mornings and later in the evenings, I did research in obesity. And I was looking at the interface between brain function and body composition. I fell in love with one of these participants. And as you can imagine, there's always that one person that is just this big, boisterous energy. 
and captures your heart. And we'll just call her Betsy. She did exactly that for me. She was a mom of three, big brown eyes, robust personality, and I imaged her brain. Now, Betsy, like a lot of people, had been on the yo-yo dieting train. Over the course of her lifetime, lost hundreds of pounds. Lost 20, regained 30, lost another 20, etc. Because the information that the general medical community was providing was go to Weight Watchers, eat less, move more, do cardiovascular activity, and follow somewhat of a food guide pyramid. I imaged Betsy's brain, and her brain looked like the beginning of an Alzheimer's brain. Man, and it was at that moment that I had this epiphany. And this epiphany came to me because I started to think about all the other patients I was seeing, the patients in the nursing home, the patients on the hospital floor, those in the dementia unit, those in the obesity clinic. And the one unifying factor was not that they were overfat, was not that they had obesity. The unifying factor that defined all of their health was the fact that they had unhealthy skeletal muscle. And this is where muscle-centric medicine was born. One of the studies I was looking up, actually like talking about how I go look at the studies from your book, because you mentioned how there's this idea of sarcopenic obesity. And so basically, you know, we look at people who are overweight and obese and they can also actually be under-muscled. And I read one of the studies that was talking about this, but with everything that you just said and that, because when we look at all of these studies that look at weight loss and obesity and health conditions, and like you mentioned, like Alzheimer's and all these things, if we adjusted for muscle, how much of the actual obesity do you think would be correlated to these conditions? Like, do you think it's all the muscle or like, what is the relationship there? That's a wonderful question. The first thing that I want to point out is that we know when individuals, there is a threshold for body fat where it becomes a problem for the majority of people. We know over 30% or 30%, again, it depends on the individual, will begin to see metabolic derangements, whether that's an increase in blood glucose, increase in insulin, increase in triglycerides, increase in HSCRP, other inflammatory markers. There seems to be an issue from a physiological perspective with having excess adipose tissue in and of itself as an inflammatory organ. However, your question was, is it really the skeletal muscle? Where is the interplay between skeletal muscle and obesity? Sarcopenic obesity, sarcopenia is the loss of skeletal muscle mass and function. Sarcopenic obesity is the combination of two and really a changing in body composition. So we see an increase in body fat with a subsequent loss in skeletal muscle. When you look at skeletal muscle directly, which by the way, there are very few studies that directly measure skeletal muscle mass. So Melanie, if you were to go back and look at these studies, the majority of studies examine skeletal muscle through DEXA, which is not a direct measure of skeletal muscle mass. It is an extrapolation. It is directly measuring body fat and it is looking at bone. The rest is extrapolated. When you look at skeletal muscle mass directly, and Dr. William Evans has really pioneered this through looking at it, whether it is through a deuterated creatine, which is going to be the way of the future. This is a way of actually tagging skeletal muscle, looking at creatine because the majority of creatine is found in skeletal muscle. 
you will begin to see that the, the loss of the mass, the loss of skeletal muscle mass may have a greater influence on health outcomes than the actual gain of body fat. So it is the loss of skeletal muscle that is more critical than the gain of body fat. Is it chicken or the egg with the, the muscle and the fat gain? Can you have one and not the other? What's all the potential combinations there? This is another great and critical question. And here's how we're going to frame this, Melanie. Early studies out of Yale looked at 18-year-old healthy sedentary college students without any outward sign of obesity. What they found was that when a healthy 18-year-old was sedentary, there was skeletal muscle insulin resistance. Skeletal muscle insulin resistance is really at the focal point of what begins to happen. It is likely the beginning phases of what we begin to see before we see obesity, before we see diabetes. Insulin resistance is really defined or identified as this impaired biological response to insulin. And insulin is a peptide hormone released from the pancreas which primarily involves liver, muscle, and adipose tissue. Your question is, is it the chicken or the egg that comes first? Is it adipose tissue gain first, or is it muscle impairment first? It, in my opinion, and based on the evidence in the literature, it is a muscle issue first. Insulin resistance impairs glucose disposal. There is a whole host of other things that happen. There are metabolic consequences that happen with insulin resistance that result in hyperglycemia, hypertension, abnormal lipids, elevated inflammatory markers. And most importantly, as insulin resistance progresses in skeletal muscle, the ability of skeletal muscle to manage glucose as well as manage fatty acids changes. And the way I really like to think about this is, number one, the evidence supports skeletal muscle insulin resistance as a primary site. I'm talking about insulin resistance because it is a precursor for the development of obesity. Skeletal muscle is the primary site for glucose disposal, which means having blood sugar out of the bloodstream into skeletal muscle, 80-some percent of glucose disposal happens there. That is your target tissue. Okay, gotcha. Do you think there's any correlation? Because there's the idea with with body weight and body fat gain that the skinny fat paradox and you know people who genetically just don't put on as much fat that they get metabolic issues sooner, even though it doesn't look like it on the outside because they just don't basically create that fat storage to create that cushion for that extra energy kind of like with the Asian populations, we see that more. Do you think there's any correlation between a person's potential to store excess fat protectively before it becomes an issue and their muscles' ability to dispose of fuel? Okay, and to say it a different way, so the, the muscles' ability to deal with glucose and the fuel, and I guess fatty acids as well, compared to the fat tissue's ability to take in excess calories. Do you think there's any correlation between those two? Like, are those two separate systems or are they more connected? What I'm hearing your question be is what happens to populations that inherently seem to have lower muscle mass? Like lower body fat, 
but they become metabolically metabolic issues, kind of like the like an Asian population. But I would say that in an Asian population, the percent body fat is higher. So it's not that they have a person. So I believe, uh, and we'd have to look at the data, but the from what I understand is their actual body fat percentage is high and their, their muscle mass is low compared to their muscle mass. And so what happens is, and we see this in bed rest studies, what happens is when you have low muscle mass and, you know, I just had Emily Lance on my podcast and she's done a lot of, she's part of the Galveston group and they do a lot of these bed rest studies. Bed rest studies looking at older and younger individuals when they are put on bed rest can lose two pounds of skeletal muscle in their leg in the first five to seven days. That's a lot of skeletal muscle. And what they see is that in those times, they see a significant increase in insulin resistance and a significant impairment in glucose regulation in a very short period of time. So bringing it back to populations with lower skeletal muscle mass, those populations are inherently at a greater risk already. The question becomes, I think, do we, is there a genetic potential or is it a cultural aspect where maybe the diet is lower in protein or, you know, they are potentially not leveraging techniques to increase muscle hypertrophy you know, for that, I can't necessarily answer. But the thing that we do know is that lower skeletal muscle mass precedes a lot of the challenges that we see. Gotcha. Okay. I have more on this, but before we get too far away from it, <laughs> that the, what we were talking about earlier, a second ago, about how none of the, like the majority of the studies don't account for muscle historically. And if they do, it's DEXA scan. Do you think there's any potential? Because I know with the advent of AI, there's increasingly more an ability to potentially reanalyze studies and relook at data using AI. Do you think there's any potential in the future where we could go back and look at these studies and AI could somehow figure out, like take into account this muscle factor, or is it completely lost data because measurements were, weren't taken away they needed to be taken, like the creatine stuff? I think that the only way that we could potentially account for that will be if the studies were done with CT or MRI. But again, the, these are not a, and when I say direct measure, this is a, it's almost like a biological reference. I, I'm not sure the best way to state it, but again, imaging, is it a direct measure? Not necessarily. For example, uh, measuring blood glucose would be a direct measure. I I think the it's an interesting thought experiment to see once we correct or utilize AI, will we see differences? Potentially, but this is something that has been completely missed in the data for since, you know, I don't want to say since the beginning of time, but really for an extended period of time without directly looking at skeletal muscle mass, there these are issues. What is going to happen now is when we begin to address and look at skeletal muscle mass directly, I believe we are going to see a whole new body of research emerge. And that whole new body of research are, that is going to emerge is going to change. We are at the precipice of changing another paradigm. For the longest time, it has been believed that it is only the strength that matters. And from a cognitive perspective, it doesn't make logical sense. 
It doesn't make logical sense that it is only the strength that matters, not the mass. Because what happens when you have low muscle mass, all the things that we talked about, low muscle mass will be a precursor for elevated levels of blood glucose, potentially insulin resistance, potentially elevated levels of triglycerides, et cetera. What is going to happen when we directly look at skeletal muscle mass, I believe that it is going to change what we have thought about as the importance of actually laying down more of that tissue. Wow. I'm just thinking about how much, you know, if obesity was partly a proxy for the the muscle issue, and if that was just left out of all of these studies, it's kind of mind-blowing, the insinuations there. Okay, question about the strength versus the mass. So when it comes to, because they'll often say that muscle, and you talk about it as well, is highly correlated to longevity and mortality. Does that go for both strength and mass equally or is one more than the other? Right now, people will talk about strength. The majority of the literature just focuses on strength. But there has been a recent few studies that showed that low muscle mass, again, I believe that these are population-based studies, so not as ideal as we'd like, but that the low muscle mass increases risks of both morbidity and mortality. It really is the loss of tissue, but we just haven't caught up yet. Why is grip strength what they normally look at when it comes to strength and longevity? I believe differently than... So grip strength is considered just the standard, the the gold standard for longevity. I'm not exactly sure how they decided or correlated that. But if you really dive into the literature, there's a few things that you may see that grip strength may be determined at birth. So that there is a possibility that grip strength is not going to be the ultimate outcome. But again, The challenge with muscle and the challenge with some of these metrics is oftentimes much of it has been repeated over time. But if you look at some of the younger literature as it relates to younger individuals, there is some evidence to suggest that grip strength is determined at birth. And if that's the case, then it kind of throws out what we think about as it pertains to training for the improvement of grip strength. I'm, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because people always talk about grip strength and I, I'm on the fence. I, I think that that is another potential mistake. If you were to hypothesize about why grip strength would be a good indicator of longevity, like is there anything special about our hands, our hand muscles, or is it really just that's what they picked and went with? I don't know. I mean, for me, it's not something that I've spent a lot of time addressing or thinking about. Because on a very fundamental level, I need to be able to answer the question, how is this translatable? For me, I'm much more interested as a geriatrician or someone who trained in geriatrics is how many times and how fast can someone get out of a chair? How fast can they walk? What is their balance like? Do I care about their grip strength? I mean, some people do. But again, I have to be able to answer the question, does this make sense? And what am I really looking at? Okay. And then actually related to that, so that's really interesting about it potentially being determined at birth. When it does come to strength and mass, what is the role of genetics? What is the role of 
muscle contraction, so mechanical, like the actual mechanical action of the muscle, and then what is the role of the brain, especially going back to what you were talking about earlier about looking at the brains of people with obesity, does the brain influence the size and strength of our muscles? Yes. So let me let me circle back and mention this idea of grip strength. So people talk about it as this just indispensable biomarker, by the way. And looking at it, they believe that it's somewhat of a reliable biomarker for overall quality and strength, and that when that is lost, that would essentially show signs of accelerated aging. But again, I'm not so convinced that that is the overall metrics. So I I just want to mention that because if we are talking about genetics and changes, I think that there's a lot of other things that potentially could impact grip strength. And again, how do we correlate that all? I just want to make sure that I kind of close that out. I I thought that that's important because I have to tell you, are you, is your listener at home measuring their grip strength? I hope not. I hope they are at home determining how much they can squat, how fast they can run a mile, how many pushups can they do? rather than thinking about grip strength as this indispensable biomarker for a young or middle-aged adult. Maybe for an older adult is that it's easier to measure and easier to test. Again, we have to have enough sense that if we're asking the question and saying that there is a correlation or how is this relating, what is the real answer that we're, we're going for? Not grip strength, but just muscles in general and the size and strength of them. What is the role of genetics in that, the role of actually contracting the muscle, so the physical environment of the muscle and doing that contraction, and then the brain or anything else that I'm leaving out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a a little bit about contracting skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle at rest is different than contracting skeletal muscle. Obviously, they're both skeletal muscle. And one of the things that I, I think is important is we're talking about skeletal muscle but there is also cardiac and smooth muscle, but skeletal muscle makes up 40% of an individual's body, which is interesting because it seems to be retained in that measure. And I've been working on looking at some of this data because, you know, is it 40%? Is it some people with 30%? But on average, it seems to have some consistency of around 40%. There are two broad classes of skeletal muscle. And again, we're talking in absolutes because I think getting into the weeds of a lot of this, of hybrid muscle fiber types and things becomes a bit complicated. But for a broad masterclass overview, there are two general types of skeletal muscle. There's slow twitch, which is type one. We think about that with high mitochondrial density. I know, Melanie, you and I were at a conference together and I talked about urolithin A this urolithin A would have the influence on mitochondrial health. This type 1 fiber is metabolically active, even at rest. The primary energy fuel source for skeletal muscle is fatty acids. Most people think it's carbohydrates, but it's it's actually fatty acids at rest. These slow-twitch type 1 fibers are high in myoglobin, so they're red. They typically have low levels of glycogen storage These are people that are thin and have muscle. They are typically more type one, smaller cross-sectional areas. Uh, Easy way to think about it is kind of like the postural muscles to sitting up straight. They have high endurance, low force production. 
endurance training will increase this proportion of type 1 fibers. Again, I think it's important that we lay this out because we're talking generally about skeletal muscles. So we have to dive a little bit deeper specifically because I'm sure you're going to want to get to what the role of resistance training is and what happens as we age to some of these fiber types. There is the other class we could say is fast twitch type two. This is low mitochondrial density, typically lower metabolic activity at rest, high levels of glycogen. I think the type two muscle fibers are very important and they're more difficult to maintain as we age. You don't see a lot of really jacked older people. There is a somewhat of a natural transition from type two fiber to type one. Again, is this a training? Is this an aging phenomenon? It's probably a mix of multiple influences. These fiber types have a larger cross-sectional area. This is where creatine would play a role. Also, again, there's glycogen in water that kind of are pulled into this fiber type. These are the fast twitch fibers, which have lower endurance and higher force production. The cool thing is that you can train fibers to shift depending on your activity. I believe at birth, you are born with more type 2 fibers. Again, your training probably influences this more than anything else. And then the next thing that you had mentioned is kind of this contracting skeletal muscle. So at rest, it's the primary site for glucose disposal. At rest, it is also a primary site for fatty acid oxidation. When you contract skeletal muscle, the production of force and movement stimulates a different plethora of things that happen within skeletal muscle. And that is when you contract skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle releases myokines. And these myokines are released by myocytes in the muscle cell in response to muscular contractions. And just to put this in perspective, this term was first introduced in 2003. That is not that long ago. Wow, yeah. And it, it, they're really implicated in metabolism, both locally and systemically. There are over 600 different types of myokines. And I would say the majority of them, we still probably don't even know. Again, this, this work is still relatively very, very new. And what is so fascinating is that when you begin to train, let's say the most famous myokine is interleukin-6. And by the way, this was only found 23 years ago. It's not as if we've known about this forever. And it's secreted from muscles into the bloodstream based on a response to muscle contraction. And the amount that reaches the circulation is affected by both the duration and intensity of exercise. So this means that the way in which you train will have an influence of what kind and the amount of interleukin that is released. So you're probably thinking, well, I don't care about interleukin-6. Well, you may be not thinking that, but the listener is probably thinking, okay, well, why do we care about interleukin-6? If you were to take a step back during a time where people were discussing this cytokine storm, people were talking about interleukin-6 and all these cytokines, here is a myokine that is the same structure 
but has a different influence because of where it is released on whole body inflammation. So essentially, it allows, number one, there seems to be a protective effect against muscle atrophy, as well as influencing the immune system counteracting or balancing interleukin-6 and interleukin-15 from macrophages or other cells of the immune system. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Between like IL-6, IL-8, IL-10, IL-6 is considered anti-inflammatory, right? Typically. Yep. And 10 as well, anti-inflammatory. Yes. And it really just depends on the environment because again, they when it is released from skeletal muscle, this is a different, it has a different influence than when it is released from a macrophage. And that is really important to understand. And that this idea that we are leveraging skeletal muscle as an endocrine system and an endocrine organ is pivotable. <laughs> but the understanding that these myokines really mediate this muscle and brain and adipose and liver, that there is this crosstalk, that exercising skeletal muscle has a full body influence. And that is a very essential component. So what I'm saying is it's not just the exercise. It's not just the burning and utilization of calories that is happening with exercise. It's, it is also the implications of the contracting skeletal muscle and what that does. There are myokines that affect lipolysis. 
that affect the brain, BDNF for hippocampal neurogenesis. These myokines also decrease appetite, all directly released from skeletal muscle, even potentially improves the aging of skin. There is nothing more potent than exercising skeletal muscle when it comes to longevity and having an overall balancing effect in the body. And again, I'm saying this in very black and white terms. None of this exists in black or white terms. But as humans, it becomes very important to be able to put things into frameworks that we can understand and have a conversation around. Okay. I'm so fascinated by this. So the IL-6, when it's released by a macrophage, is it called a cytokine? And when it's released by muscle, it's called a myokine, but it's the same compound? It's the same compound that has different effects. And that be that could be because it's tagged differently, but it's essentially the same compound. Okay. Oh, it's tagged different. Okay. Because so my, my second question was, which felt a little esoteric, but hearing what you just said, maybe it's not so esoteric. I was <laughs> wondering if the... Uh, the IL-6 knew if it came from a muscle or... Yeah. So it does know because it's tagged. Yeah, there's some kind... Yes. Okay. That tells it what to do or how to act. How it is. It has somewhat of a pleiotrophic effect. Yes. Okay, good. I was haunted by this. I was like, how does it know? I was like, how does it know where it came from and like what it's doing? (laughs) Again, incredibly fascinating. So Melanie, the biggest thing here is the goal. My ultimate goal is to change the conversation of what muscle is about. Five years ago, if you talk about muscle, everybody is thinking about muscle for performance. Can we agree upon that? For performance, for looking good naked, for being able to do and run a certain distance or lift a certain thing. My goal with muscle-centric medicine is to make it the pinnacle of health and wellness, to understand that Muscle-centric medicine is a whole new approach that acknowledges the health of one's skeletal muscle tissue and how this significantly impacts the health of all other organ systems within the body. And most critical is the perspective that it is rooted in actionable behavioral recommendations that we have direct control over. And And I know that that's a little bit of a mouthful, but It's essential to move the perception of skeletal muscle as purely performance to the multitude of other roles it has within inflammation, within even lipolysis, within exercising skeletal muscle stimulates GLP-1 from from the intestine and, I mean, from both intestinal L cells and pancreatic B cells. I mean, this is incredible to think that contracting skeletal muscle leads to improved insulin secretion and action, but also has implications on gut function. To that point, because you you mentioned in the book how it's our, well, I don't know if it's our largest, is that our largest organ system? It is our largest organ. And on top of that, it's our only one with voluntary control which, I mean, so it's, it, there's just so many paradigm shifts because one, it's affecting literally everything like you're saying, and it's the one thing we can actually really, you know, voluntarily control. So it's huge. My friend, it is the only thing. It is the only thing that we can control. Can we think about our liver 
and exercise our liver. I mean, maybe drinking, but how much, in, right? There is no, when you can actually think about, do we contract our bicep? Do we do a leg extension? Do we do a squat? Again, the only organ that we have biological control. Not the smooth muscle though, right? That would, that would be the exception. Smooth muscle would be uterus. We don't have direct control over that. But, and then cardiac muscle, we don't have direct control over that. Is smooth muscle also what lines our blood vessels throughout our body? That's right. Okay. Gotcha. Although with a cardiac, like doing, you know, cardio, <laughs> using our heart, does that strengthen our heart muscle? Totally. But you're not able to sit here. And if I was say, if I said, Melanie, I said, Melanie, I'm going to pay you a million dollars. Please bring your heart rate up to 150 beats a minute. Could you do it? Could you do it? Oh, man. No, nobody could do it. Even if I said, I'm going to give you $5 million, I need you to hit 220 beats a minute. Could you do it? But if I said, I need you to do a 150-pound squat, at least you could try. Yeah. Oh, actually, related to that, because that's a question I've always had. They say, whoever they is, they say that we don't fully contract to our full potential because our brain stops us. Is that true? Maybe. I'm not totally sure, but yes, typically there would be some kind of central fatigue. There may be, you know, I haven't really looked at the data, but it, it would make sense. Okay, gotcha. But the question is, does it have to be to full potential or what are we looking for? Ultimately, the question is, what we're looking for is an adaptation. When we are contracting skeletal muscle, we're looking for an adaptation. We're looking for the adaptation of either muscle strength, size, or local endurance. Also, now everybody listening is thinking, I'm going to contract skeletal muscle because I also want to release myokines. I'm going to throw something else out there that is not commonly discussed about skeletal muscle. And I had to take it out of my book because my book was already 400 pages. Before I did this book, it was probably 600 pages and they had to cut it back. Exercising skeletal muscle releases glutamine which is a semi-essential amino acid. And glutamine is a fuel source for cells of the immune system, for lymphocytes. This, was a, this is a direct relationship between exercising skeletal muscle and cells of the immune system. That is profound. I think that was in the version I read. Well, you got a, you're VIP, so you got a very early version. I think I got the early version. Not everybody got that version. In fact, it didn't even make it in the book, I don't think. Because it was talking about glutamine being released from muscle. And I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. Wow. Okay. Another question about this, because you were just talking about the adaptation and the stimulus and, and the growth and such. So they'll often say when people haven't, like when people are have not been exercising and have not been doing strength training that they can make gains pretty fast because they're coming from a baseline of not already uh, having done that. On the flip side, you talk about this role of muscle memory in the book and how you can reactivate. So if you have muscle, maybe you can say this more eloquently and correct me where I'm wrong, but if you have muscle that you've been training and then you lose it, it sounds like you have a sort of muscle memory that you can reactivate it. So what do we do with that seeming paradox of coming from a baseline of nothing makes it seem, quote, easier to make gains, but also this muscle memory idea would make it, quote, easier to make gains? So 
what's happening. <laughs> I like what you're saying. One of the things that we have to understand is that it is really important that we prioritize the health of our skeletal muscle system early on. In the context of skeletal muscle memory, it's really the capacity of skeletal muscle to respond to different environmental stimuli that it, in a manner as if it had already been there before. For example, for me, I have been well-trained my entire life. I have very, very interested in this. If I were to stop training, then for me to reinitiate and gain back that tissue would be much easier than for someone who has never built a certain threshold in the way that it may be easier for someone to put on muscle if they haven't, they are not necessarily going from a healthy state to a more healthy state. They're probably going from a deficit state to a baseline state. Muscle memory, would I, the way I would think about it is going from a healthy state or at least having been at a healthy state to, again, gaining back a healthier body composition if that makes sense. So again, low muscle mass is not a healthy state. An untrained individual, arguably, I would say, is unhealthy. There's no such thing as a healthy sedentary person. And I don't mean that derogatory in any way. We just have to appreciate that if we're talking about this metabolically and medically that we believe skeletal muscle as an endocrine organ, then having less, going from a less to a baseline is not necessarily going from baseline to more. Does that make sense? It does. Yes, completely. Such good questions. I'm taking notes because I just love these questions. Thank you. You should see my little chart. We need a part two. These are just really good questions. Oh no. Yes. I would love that. And another question about the actual fueling of the muscle. What is the effect? Because you've mentioned glucose and glycogen throughout here. You've mentioned fatty acids what are the different effects on the muscle of using those two different potential fuel sources? Oh, and amino acids as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what is the implications of all those? And then I have a second part question. One important part, I, I think, to recognize is that skeletal muscle is somewhat self-containing in the way that exercising skeletal muscle will use what it has. And I was just talking to Don Lehman about this. We were kind of going back and forth because I got a very interesting question. I got this question about intralipid. That was my second question. Yeah, it's in intramuscular lipids. And when somebody would use that, the reality is, is exercising, the only way to use substrates through muscle is exercise versus utilizing stored body fat or you know, even having to pull from amino acids. But substrates like fatty acids or fat and glycogen are used by exercising skeletal muscle. Glycogen does not directly buffer or contribute to blood sugar regulation when you are exercising. That's the liver. Skeletal muscle, when you're exercising skeletal muscle, first of all, at rest, it uses mostly fatty acids. Exercising skeletal muscle, the... The longer that you go, the more you are going to use, you're going to shift into using carbohydrates and using glycogen. The next component to that question is 
that you asked about this or you're going to ask about it, which I think is a really good question, is this idea of, so what happens when skeletal muscle is unhealthy? Unhealthy skeletal muscle looks like a marbled steak, right? And that is fat infiltration, whether it's myosteatitosis, whether it is intramuscular lipids or even in the athlete's paradox where the athlete has stores of triglycerides that uses it for energy. But when skeletal muscle becomes unhealthy, this fat can infiltrate around skeletal muscle tissue. It can infiltrate within the tissue. It can ultimately become, there may be an increase in fibrosis and connective tissue, which ultimately changes the body's ability to respond both strength, mobility, and energy metabolism. And I think that that's important to understand. Now, you asked another question. Most amino acids are metabolized in the liver. The branched-chain amino acids are metabolized largely in skeletal muscle. That just goes to show that there is an unbalanced proportion of what actually gets into the bloodstream. Majority is is metabolized by the liver, but the the branched-chain amino acids are largely metabolized by skeletal muscle. Do they go through the liver on the way to the muscle or do they go directly to the the muscle? Well, they have to get into the bloodstream, but the majority of branched-chain amino acids are left untouched and go to skeletal muscle. And that is just an interesting, it it just, what this highlights for me is the importance of branched-chain amino acids for skeletal muscle. That's really what that highlights to me. And can we get those completely from food? Is there a benefit to taking BCAA supplements? Not necessarily. Not necessarily a benefit or not necessarily? Not necessarily a benefit. Again, when we talk about protein, we typically talk about it as a a generic term, right? We say protein as if it's one thing. But dietary protein is 20 different amino acids or 20 different nutrients, but yet we still talk about dietary protein as if it is one thing. And it's it's not. So leucine, isoleucine, threonine, phenylalanine, tryptophan, they all have unique, biologically different roles in the body. Primarily for the health of skeletal muscle is you need all of the dietary protein. You need all the full complex of proteins to put down new tissue But in order to even trigger this process of muscle protein synthesis, which is this incorporation of different amino acids, what you require is you require leucine. And leucine is one of the branched chain amino acids and skeletal muscle is exquisitely sensitive to leucine concentrations in a meal and in the bloodstream. So... I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that. Oh, you were asking about branched-chain amino acids. What would happen if I just gave branched-chain amino acids? If I just gave you branched-chain amino acids, it would be the equivalent of putting the key into a car and turning the ignition. And that engine would turn over. But the car wouldn't have any gas. The gas would be the full complex of amino acids. For that reason, I don't recommend branched-chain amino acids as a standalone. Because what is the goal? We have to be able to provide the answer to any question. What is the goal? 
what is my goal of grip strength? What is my goal of ingesting these branched chain amino, amino acids? What is my goal of doing this kind of exercise? What is the outcome that I'm looking for? And the outcome that we're looking for is not just stimulating muscle protein synthesis, but what we're looking for is the sparing of muscle tissue, the health of overall lean body mass, which includes liver and bone and intestine and skin. And the way in which we are going to do that is we're going to hit the threshold of skeletal muscle first. So no, that's a very long-winded way of saying, do we just need branched-chain amino acids? No. What I'd much rather have someone do is add in an essential amino acid mix with a lower-protein meal, or one could potentially add in branched-chain amino acids with a lower-protein meal. Okay. I do have some questions about the leucine before that, because before leaving the um, the fueling of the muscles with the intramuscular lipid droplets, because I've been so haunted by this athlete's paradox concept for so long, because I was thinking you talk about it in the book and we hear about the issues of having these fat droplet buildups in our body. And yet athletes seem to have a lot of intramuscular triglycerides and fat droplets and but they're healthy and what's going on there. And so in my head, I was like, well, maybe it's just because they're using them more. Like maybe they're burning through it. So it's not as much of an issue. That was like my very, that was just my hypothesis. Then last night I I went down the rabbit hole. Are you familiar with the two different types of lipid droplets in the muscle? There's a lot. So, so tell me what. So I was talking about literally a paper about what was happening with the athlete's paradox. I got so excited when I found it. It was talking about lipid droplets and skeletal muscle saying that there's intramyofibrillar lipid droplets, which are really metabolically active and they serve as an energy reservoir during acute exercise. And then there's subsarcomal lipid droplets that are fewer in number, less active. They're higher in patients with type 2 diabetes. And it was saying that they're like closer to the surface And so maybe it was talking about how like when we look at these lipid droplets, we just look at one number, kind of like with the protein and we just look at it like a protein, but we don't look at the type. I thought it was so fascinating. I was like, oh, this explains so much. Yeah. One thing that we could agree upon is that a trained individual is going to have healthier skeletal muscle than a sedentary individual. So yes, the athlete's paradox got the name because it was unusual that these triglycerides would be within skeletal muscle, but it is actually used for energy system and developed because of the need for the need for energy versus looking at a diabetic or an older individual that has skeletal muscle fat infiltration, not because they are using it for energy, but because in fact that they weren't. And you know, some of these studies will look at CT, but again, a CT is not going to be a great way to identify that. But yeah, I, I think it's it's incredibly fascinating. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. 
there's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Yeah, because the question I was haunted by, and there's actually a correlated question with high lipid levels on like keto diets. Cause I was thinking if these athletes have these really high levels of intramuscular lipid droplets, and then they stop being an athlete, does that mean now they just have all this fat there? And then like the similarity would be like people on keto diets who have really high like LDL and cholesterol, but they say it's all fine because of their high HDL or their inflammatory status or their lack of plaque. But then I think what if they do make a dietary shift and now they're just awash in LDL and cholesterol? You know, what if they stop doing what they're doing to keep maintain that anti-inflammatory state? This is more contemplating. Yeah, I, I, I think these are really interesting and, and thought-provoking questions. 
I'm going to see if I can find something. My guess is that, I mean, the only way to really leverage any of that fuel would be through training. So the question would be, what happens if an athlete all of a sudden becomes sedentary? What happens with that triglyceride store? And I think that the next level to that question would be, well, I, I suppose the, the best way to, to think about that would be what, how much fat is infiltrated into the tissue in a sedentary human. And again, it's, it's likely a spectrum and a continuum. But really fascinating. I'm fully expecting you to send me some papers, Melanie, now. <laughs> well, like a similar thing would be like, say you have a lot of muscle as an athlete and you stop. Well, I mean, that's not good, but losing the muscle presumably wouldn't be toxic compared to stopping and having all this fat might be toxic. So I'm just really interested. Yeah, really, really good thoughts. Back to the leucine, like you were talking about. So you mentioned it now, you mentioned it all throughout the book, and it's the importance of leucine to properly activate muscle protein synthesis and how we need a certain amount at a meal to do that. So why leucine? How does it interact with mTOR? And how does it literally interact? Like, does it connect with mTOR? Like, what's actually happening there? And why does it have to be a certain amount to do that? Yeah. So I'm going to really kind of put this out in a way that, again, will provide a framework for understanding. First of all, leucine is one of the branched-chain amino acids. And again, it is specifically related to muscle protein synthesis, and it is required in a threshold amount. And I think that part of the belief when I say threshold, typically when you're younger, you don't require this leucine threshold. So this goes back to not just the idea of the threshold, but it has to do with also the changing in skeletal muscle tissue as we age. And leucine is one of these essential amino acids and one of the amino acids that's necessary for the stimulation of this pathway known as mTOR. So it's actually mTOR-C1. And basically, the discovery of kind of this mTOR pathway, the, the regulation of this signal transduction pathway didn't even come about till the 90s. So basically, what ended up being discovered is that the ability of leucine alone to stimulate skeletal muscle led to a whole host of new papers and just an exploration of the science, which ultimately recognized that leucine stimulated mTOR C1, which is, you know, it's activated by other enzymes and, you know, there's numerous different pathways, but ultimately this pathway then goes on to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and the activation of messenger RNA, which is, you know, this ends up being this initiation factor. And it's very sensitive to this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna also highlight something else. It's very sensitive to the intracellular leucine concentration. Right now, when you do a test and you look at leucine levels in the bloodstream, this is not an indication of, you know, if you are looking at just fasting levels of, of leucine in the blood or fasting levels of amino acids. This is not a reflection of intracellular leucine. And it's this intracellular leucine content. And in fact, I'll say that leucine will never be determined to be, quote, a limiting 
amino acid based on some of these blood levels because the blood maintains a certain amount of leucine in the bloodstream. So I guess this is for the providers that are listening to your show. You guys should not be measuring amino acids in the bloodstream because that is not where the impact is. It is really the intracellular concentrations. So anyway, mTOR signaling then, you know, has this whole host of effects and then it produces muscle protein synthesis. Again, this is critical for the regulatory system or the regulatory signal to even happen. When you, and it requires, when you are younger, it could be, it could be 0.5 grams of leucine. It could be not much. It doesn't really matter. When you're young and driven largely by hormones, it doesn't have the same influence. However, as you age, and there's multiple studies that look at the amounts of leucine, let's say we want to say that there's 30 gram, in a 30 gram high quality protein meal, there's two and a half grams of leucine. That is the minimum threshold for a more mature adult to stimulate mTORC1 for initiation of muscle protein synthesis. Again, we don't also know how long that stays active, but it is required for synthesis to even happen. And maybe this rate of synthesis declines after two to three hours. Again, maybe there's this refractory period. Not totally sure. But that first meal of 30 grams of protein is essential to stimulate this process. When you are below that threshold and you are maturing, you will not stimulate this mechanistic target of rapamycin because of the change in skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle it has a decrease in efficiency of sensing the leucine threshold. So I know that that is kind of a little deep into the weeds, but to bring it all back, one must understand that this, and I talk about this in my book. So in my book, Forever Strong, which obviously we're talking about, is built on some of these premises of understanding this meal distribution because it's important, especially as we age. Do you know with that reduced capacity to sense leucine, if it's a just a like a mechanical breakdown byproduct of aging, or is it no longer being prioritized by the body because because of aging? Which might be the same thing. <laughs> Basically, is the body purposely not caring as much anymore because we've reached a certain timeline and it's not important to, you know, have muscle as much or is it a defect from aging? It may be a biological process, this anabolic resistance. And again, it's really just the efficiency of utilization. And arguably there's efficiency of a lot of things that go down as we age, whether it's mitochondria, a protein turnover, just the efficiency of our body over time and, you know, one could look at, there's uh, the Hallmarks of Aging, that paper that originally came out in two, 2013 that highlights this. But whether it is, and, you know, it, it's interesting you ask this question because you're asking a direct question. And my answer would be, I don't know what a very active older individual, if their efficiency would go down at the same rate. But I would say for the majority of the population, we can assume that anabolic resistance happens. And also anabolic resistance can happen with obesity. And it could just be a reflection of the health of skeletal muscle. 
And that's why understanding that it is this 24-hour amount of dietary protein, which I recommend at 0. 3, uh, 0.7 to 1 gram per pound ideal body weight, but typically the, the way in which it is distributed is important for an aging individual, but not necessarily for an athlete, right? So according to the ISSN, if you look at their protein timing and recommendations, for athletes, they care more about a 24-hour period. But if you believe in the data of so much of this work, looking at meal distribution and muscle protein synthesis threshold, then you would have to infer that the protein dosing is important and the way in which it's dosed is, is critical. Well, actually, to that point, and that was the question I had, is that potential of the elongated 24-hour window for the athlete's because the resistance training and exercise has primed their system to be more receptive and so they have more leeway? Is that a potential? I know you talked in the book about how you might actually need less protein when you're resistance training because you become so much more, and I'm using such casual terminology, but it becomes more receptive essentially. Well, an athlete is a highly trained muscle and also they're younger. They probably have more hormones, a better hormonal status, and the balance between diet and exercise and hormones shifts with shifting. When you are young, you have good capillary perfusion, you have great blood flow, good splanchnic extraction, you're able to absorb the foods that you're eating. As you age, capillary perfusion decreases, IGF-1 decreases, testosterone decreases, all of which impact skeletal muscle over time. Okay. Gotcha. I want to know if the body's doing this completely on purpose or if it's... No, no. It's kind of like if you don't start a car for a long... Well, think about it. I've had actually been asked this question before and I thought about this a lot is think about a car that you don't start. You might drain the battery. It's not because the car is trying to drain the battery. It's because it hasn't been used. And this is where use becomes to be critical. The body was designed to move. If you don't use it, you lose it. This is no different. It's not that it becomes, we are aging, and this is, th there is a reality to aging. And I know some people say aging is a disease. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, there is an end of life. And in the US, we try to forget that that is a thing. We can talk about longevity. And to me, it's not all about longevity. It's at some point, we all die. How do we want to live while we have the time to do so? Yeah, our health span compared to our lifespan as well. The actual leucine, when it activates mTOR C1, how long does it stay activated? And is it binary? So is it basically, because you said when younger population, it doesn't require that threshold to activate, whereas when you're older, it does. So how much of it is a spectrum versus being binary on and off? Great, great question. I think that it is always on and off. I say that, but is, is that true? We also know that mTOR, again, mechanistic target of rapamycin, mTOR is in every cell and it's in the pancreas and it's in the brain and it's activated and can remain more of a low level hum as you age. But specifically when we're talking about skeletal muscle, it is a on or off thing. It doesn't kind of happen or, or kind of not. But when you're young, the 
the sensitivity and the threshold is likely substantially lower. And also other things that activate mTOR C1 in skeletal muscle are insulin, are exercise. There's other influences. And I would say that the relationship between that changes. So when you're younger, it's insulin and growth hormones. And when you're older, the way to stimulate that tissue is going to be through diet and exercise. So the balance between the two. And what about mTORC2? Is it involved with this at all? No, it's not. That is involved in other tissues. I actually haven't spent a lot of time studying that protein complex, but yes, I, I would say that it is not. Whenever I hear them thrown around like the C1, C2, it's usually the vibe that's given is they're pretty similar. Like there's not usually much distinction that I receive. So this is a big distinction if the C1 is the, the primary one with the muscle. So speaking of these different, because you just mentioned all these different ways that you can stimulate like the role of exercise, diet, all these things. Does just eating protein or just eating leucine, can it stimulate muscle growth or do you also have to have a physical stimulus? Another genius question. If you are potentially low or deficient in, in skeletal muscle, I think there is a degree of laying down tissue that will happen. If you are healthy and not, quote, deficient in protein or deficient in muscle, you do require stimulation. It is not, you do require that stimulus. But one is not going to happen necessarily without the other. If you are a 100% high-carbohydrate diet and you're not getting these amino acids, it's not going to happen. You do require amino acids. Great questions. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Thank you. I've just been thinking about all this for so long. Okay, here's a question for you. When you are eating, and maybe maybe we should um tell the listeners because and listeners, you've got to get forever strong because I know we're going way in the nuance of all these things, but there's so much information in this book and there's very applicable, implementable 
easy to do, well, easy to do, um, <laughs> easy to understand protocols. So definitely get the book because it's a very valuable resource. And there's a lot of mindset as well at the end of every chapter, which is super encouraging and motivating and really important as well in this whole journey. So the RDAs, how did you formulate your lion RDAs for for protein amounts compared to the the official ones, which was kind of shocking to learn the history behind that and especially like the similarities between the Great Depression amounts of protein? Yeah. I'm so glad you like this book, Melanie, because I know how many books that you read. Oh, I love it. I love it. There's just so much history behind this. So the, the dietary protein recommendations really came from initially out of need, out of the Great Depression, when they drafted about a million soldiers and everybody was unfit for war. It was somewhat of a, an emergency. And after that happened, they started to say, well, listen, we got to fix this. How are we going to get people strong? And the way we're going to get people strong is that we're going to feed them high-quality proteins they need to eat liver, they need to eat beef, they need to eat fruits and vegetables, and they need to be vital, right? And then they highlighted the importance of dietary protein. Again, they didn't actually know in detail what that was going to be, that number per se. They then, and I will also mention that they said either you're helping Uncle Sam or you're helping Hitler. And in order to help Hitler, it was a very high processed carbohydrate diet and low protein diet. And by the way, we are seeing a push for a lower protein diet. Just to kind of mention that, you guys have to get the book to read a little bit about the history, but, you know, we are seeing narratives reemerging in that way. In 1968, they issued the first dietary guidelines for protein, and that was 0.37 grams per pound, which is if I'm 115 pounds, then that's 45 grams of protein. And that's the minimum to prevent deficiencies. That number has not been changed to this day. I would be starving. If I, <laughs> I'm so hungry just thinking about that. Also, just really quick side note, something that blew my, it was a mind blown moment reading your book when you talked about the role of regulation and the, the health claims or the education that can happen from commodities versus non-commodity products. It basically explained about how plant-based processed foods can make a lot of health claims and like your steak can't. Blew my mind. Yeah. And, and we'll just highlight for the listener. So basically you have whole foods, which are commodities, beef, chicken, soy, corn, whatever, a whole food commodity under the USDA. Then you have processed foods that are under FTC and a conglomerate like that. And the USDA collectively all the farmers put together their money and their collective marketing budget is $750 million. One company like PepsiCo is almost a $2 billion budget. And we know that whoever controls the money controls the narrative and what you are hearing. Not only that, one, is, one can be disparaging against the other. Processed foods can largely say whatever they want until they're shut down versus a commodity has much more strict guidelines and they can't say anything. They can't say beef is better than X, Y, and Z. Or beef is a better source of protein than a, a fake plant burger. Whereas a plant burger can say whatever they want. It's so upsetting. I never thought about it before, but you, you talk about how like the got milk thing, like that's not any one brand. It's just like milk. I was like, you're right. Like it never occurred to me that there's not like the quote education comes from the, the collective of the 
you know, like the meat or the the milk or the egg industry. But then when you're talking about how they can't actually even really educate or make claims, it was really frustrating. Going back to that, that 14 gram recommendation. So how compared to your recommendation, how intuitive, because there's this whole world of intuitive eating, how intuitive is this, is getting this adequate protein? Like, can a person just like, will their body tell them they need more protein and they can be intuitive if, if they really listen? Or do they really have to weigh and measure to make sure they're getting enough protein? Well, there is this concept called the protein leverage hypothesis when basically your body will be driven to eat a certain percentage of calories from protein. The issue with intuitive eating is you don't do intuitive banking. You don't do intuitive driving. You measure things. Once you get a sense of what it is that you are eating, then you can become more intuitive when you have a baseline understanding. But going right to intuitive eating, I think, is a mistake because, again, nutrition is a science. And if we dose it correctly and you have a sense of where you are when you're feeling great and how you're eating when you're feeling great, then it's a non-negotiable. And then how about the actual protein type that you're eating? So plant versus animal. And then I'm really interested in within the animal world, land versus sea, because I, I go down the rabbit hole of like, quote, inflammatory amino acid profiles. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on, on that. Well, they are not interchangeable. Animal and plant protein are not interchangeable. You cannot say, for example, a fake meat burger is the same as a beef burger, even if the fake meat burger has more phytonutrients per se. There are different metabolomics and different metabolites that just, again, are completely different. Animal-based products, gravity-bearing products are going to be the highest quality. But then again, whey is the gold standard. So whey as a percentage of leucine, whey is the gold standard for a amino acid profile that is robust, closest to ours. Fish has about five grams of protein per one ounce, whereas beef, say, has eight grams of protein per one ounce. But the, the difference isn't just in the amino acids, it's also in the food matrix. So beef would have serine, carnitine, creatine, more iron, potentially B12, et cetera. Whereas fish may have more omega-3s or other kinds of other nutrient values. Therefore, in my mind, there is a place for both, but they are not interchangeable. Hopefully that answered your question. It does. And you mentioned in the book that if people are doing, like getting it all from plants that they likely need, I don't, I had it written down like 34%. So basically it's also really important to understand that again, we're just talking about protein. We're talking about amino acids. What about all the other low molecular weight bioactive compounds like creatine. You're not going to get that from plants. You're not going to get taurine, which is really important for aging and potentially energy for eyes. Like you're not going to get that. They're not interchangeable and we shouldn't be eliminating food groups. There should be an interface between the two. And when it comes to creatine, because that is, people are talking about creatine all the time. And so I'm often thinking like, should I be taking creatine? Do you need to add any specific amino acids if you are eating a shockingly high protein diet? Like I eat a shockingly high protein diet. No, you would not be someone who needs creatine then. Okay. I eat like pounds and pounds of meat every night. Okay. 
and this is a very random question, but the um, the thermic effect potential of protein, I'm curious because you talk in the book about how the amino acids from when we eat a meal, you know, they're used structurally, but then they can also be used well as fuel and then they can also be converted into essentially glucose. Do you know if the thermic effect of protein differs based on how you're using those amino acids? It does. And that's why you see variations in the literature from 15 to potentially 20% of this thermic effect of food. So if you're eating 100 grams of just pure protein, your net caloric site, you know, the body might recognize 80, 80 calories of protein. Or if you're eating 100 calories of protein, if you are eating it in a particular meal threshold, again, this is my thoughts as well as Don's, that it's that muscle protein synthetic response that generates the variations in thermic effect of feeding. So if it's lower, maybe you're influencing the thermic effect of feeding at 15%, maybe a little bit lower, but when you're hitting this threshold and challenging the machinery, that is what makes a difference. Oh, wow. I'm so excited that you had an answer to that. I was like, this is going to be too nuanced of a question, or not nuanced, but too like random. What you just said to clarify, your theory is that the thermic effect ramps up when you're going past the limit? Yep. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. That's so fascinating. Oh, and then we talked about this on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Vanessa Spina was talking about what she learned from you and Dr. Lehman. And we talked about this and we I, we got so much kickback on this, which is protein turning to glucose. So what are your thoughts on how much glucose from a given meal can potentially or does turn into glucose? Yeah, I think it just depends, right? Is it substrate driven? So there's various influences, but a good rule of thumb is 100 grams of dietary protein may generate... 60 grams of glucose, potentially. But again, I, I don't, I think that it, it depends on the state of the person, depends on, and it's through gluconeogenesis. So it's not like you're eating 100 grams of protein and then it's just converting to sugar. It's not this immediate process. It, it really depends, I think, on other influences and how much you have and the state of again, how much glucose that you have in the bloodstream. I think that there's multiple influences. But the rule of thumb is for every 100 grams of dietary protein, you will generate through gluconeogenesis around 60 grams. Oh, and then with that, because you talk in the book about seeing potentially slightly higher resting blood sugar and or HbA1c, probably and <laughs> HbA1c in people on high protein diets, are you concerned about that at all? Or how do you feel about that? No, because insulin is good. Insulin, triglycerides are typically all good. Okay. And what about the liver enzyme elevations temporarily in women? What do you think is happening there? I don't necessarily see that. What I will say is that when individuals eat larger, one huge protein meal as opposed to potentially a more distributed amount, you may see a bigger liver versus bigger skeletal muscle. But again, the, the changes may be so slight. I don't see a ton of increase in liver enzymes. Uh, I do see increase in liver enzymes when people are training. But again, it's transient. Okay. So at the end of the book, you do provide these three different tracks. How did you come up with these tracks and how can people know which track to go on? And is there one track that does all of them? These tracks developed through, again, clinical practice. 
I saw what needed to happen. And, you know, I've been a physician since 2006. So over time, you see the impact and the influence of these things. A great place to start for everybody would be, again, if they have weight to lose, then I would do a weight loss track. If they don't have weight to lose, like for someone like you, I would stick to a longevity track. Individuals would just feel great. But again, this book is for everybody. And Melanie, if we can get this book out there, it will change the conversation completely. I agree. I agree so much. It's it's one of those books where, and I said this at the beginning and I'm saying it again, it's just this massive, huge paradigm shift that has implications about literally everything in medicine. And I'm really, really shocked that this is not out there more. And maybe that's like a good question to sort of end with, like, why do you think this hasn't been realized yet? Like, why do we end up here? Because as humans, we continue to ask the same question over and over again. And we are not necessarily thinking outside the box. And again, I coined the term muscle-centric medicine from decades of experience. In order to have flashes of insight, you have to be in the weeds doing the work for decades. And you just wait for that moment of insight to come. The other aspect is that when we continue to ask the same question over and over again and want a different answer, we have to wake up to the fact that if we're not getting a different answer, maybe it's because we're asking the wrong question. Yeah. Actually, another book I'm reading right now, it's called What's Gotten Into You, but it's about the history of the discovery of all the particles of the universe and atoms and electrons and everything and the personal story of everybody making those discoveries. And the takeaway, and I'm having it again talking to you right now, is that so much of this is just like chance. Like it's just like what researcher happened to discover something at some point and then that became like the thing that we focused on. And then it's so hard to change. So I feel like I will be so excited to see like, you know, a few decades from now, hopefully there's maybe hopefully before a complete shift. And it'll be like, Gabrielle, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon was first talking about this. <laughs> and then here we are. Hopefully it'll become the new norm. I really hope so. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, thank you so much for having me. And again, depending on when this comes out, they can go to my website, drgabriellelyon.com. I'm giving away $200 worth of just free stuff with one purchase of the book. They can also get it on Amazon. And let's see, I have a great podcast called The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. Great newsletter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, now called X. YouTube, you name it, you can find me. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lyon. We will put all of this in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash forever strong. Last question, I promise it's super easy, super fast. And it's just because I realize more and more each day the importance of mindset, which like I said, listeners is also all throughout the book. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this message. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to show my children how one message can change the world. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I am so, so grateful. Words cannot even describe how grateful I am for what you're doing. And I'm so excited for everybody to read this book and bring on the paradigm shift. Thank you for what you're doing. I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks, Melanie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine 
Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.